Well, beloved listeners, we've uh, just celebrated the 90th anniversary of the ABC this year, but there's another cultural institution that's also celebrating its 90th, and that's the New Theatre. And it played a very important part in my young life. I am, as you know, incredibly proud of the fact that ASIO opened a file on me when I was a 16-year-old communist. And at the time, most of my party duties concerned or were happening at the new theatre in Flinders Street in Melbourne, just would you believe, next door to the Herald, the mighty Herald building. My duties included lighting the pot-bellied stove to warm the place up, selling tickets to uh, live productions, appearing as an actor in a production of uh, Midsummer Night's Dream, and also being the projectionist for film screenings. I'd rush upstairs and, having sold the tickets, I'd whiz upstairs and then I'd project Soviet Soviet classics. Now, the new theatre was inspired by some of the early radical theatres in the UK and the US, and it was first established in Sydney, then Melbourne, before opening in, well, opening new theatres in Brisbane, Newcastle, Adelaide and Perth. Now, sadly, there's only one new theatre left standing, the one in Newtown in Sydney, and it survived the most recent challenge of COVID and is back in full production, hopefully still under ASIO surveillance. Now, to mark the anniversary, a beaut book of essays has been put together called The New Theatre, The People, Plays and Politics Behind Australia's Radical Theatre. The book is edited by my next guest, a dangerous, a dangerous young woman called Lisa Milner. Lisa is an historian specialising in cultural activism and I welcome you to Late Night Live, Lisa. Thank you very much for having me on Late Night Live, Philip. Tell us briefly how the new theatres got started here in Australia. Well, um, it's down to some other dangerous left-wing women, actually. In, um, 19, in the very early 1930s, Jane Devaney, who was um, a Communist Party of Australia member, had had just come back from a trip to Europe where she'd been um, amazed and interested and entertained indeed by theatrical and musical organisations in Berlin and in Russia, and she thought the idea was great. So when she came back to Sydney, she established what she called the Workers' Art Club. Uh, She did this with another dangerous left woman called Nellie Rickey and some other comrades. And um, although it changed its name to the new theatre later on, it started then. Um, It was very much influenced, as you said, by European, British, American left-wing theatrical organisations. I remember remember it had close affinities to the unions, particularly, of course, the wharfies, the waterside workers. Yes, the new theatre always saw itself as part of the part of the labour movement, and the support came from the wharfies, the seamen, the miners union, the BWIU, all left wing unions, and it was very much um, in, uh, a, uh, an arrangement of mutual support. The new theatre would perform and indeed write plays for the unions, and the unions would send along all their members to buy tickets. And from the start, the New Theatre has always been a place that showcased the work of women as writers and directors. Yeah, it was um, very, very supportive um, for women who um, 
in in contrast to other spaces, women held these theatres theatres together as directors, producers, performers. Um, Dot Thompson in Melbourne is a absolutely marvellous woman who kept the new theatre in Melbourne going for I, years. I, and years. Rem I remember Dot with great affection, and uh, Oriel Gray, of course, writing plays. Dimfna Cusack. Yes, that's right. Um, they they wrote for the Sydney New Theatre. Um, Mona Brand, Miriam Hanson, Mari Armstrong, and Norma Disher. Um, all of these women did m many things at once. They were actors. They were producers. They were directors. They were secretaries, um, and there was a lot of support for that. I've mentioned that uh, I'd arrive at the new theatre early in the evening. I'd fire up the pot-bellied stove, and then sell the tickets. Not a lot of tickets, I must admit. And then upstairs to the bio box where I'd scream, say, well, Battleship Potemkin and try and synchronise all 78 records to it because they did a lot more than live theatre. Yes, they they involved themselves in political activities as well as film screenings. Um, they wrote plays um, themselves in groups as well as individually and they came together to be part of the labour movement more broadly, which is, I think, one of the reasons why at least the Sydney um, New Theatre has lasted as long as it did. Now, I know from, its, uh, from the time, looking back at some of its proud collisions with the authorities, it, there was a play, Till the Day I Died, that was banned by Lyons in 1936 at the request of the Germans. Yes, um, it was an anti-fascist play. And in 1936 in Australia, um, that was something that was not very popular with the authorities. Uh, in Melbourne and Sydney, it was banned for five years, but very interestingly, there were productions of it. Um, in Melbourne, there were large protest meetings and the Collingwood Council sent out 1,500 invitations at the Collingwood Town Hall. Um, they tried to um, lock up the town hall um, and they ended up playing it next door in a vacant allotment. It's an um, interesting irony that the surveillance from ASIO has actually helped prepare the book. Yes, the essays have been a very interesting part of the history and a lot of the part of that history has been um, added to by some facts in the ASIO files. We can take many of them with a pinch of salt, but there's a lot of details in those ASIO files which my authors found very useful. Well, there are tens of thousands of documents. There's got to be some point to having them, isn't there? Yes, and there is at least 27 ASIO files on the new theatre throughout all the different states. So this is what you describe as a parallel history of the theatre? Yes, I believe so. There have been small um, write-ups of the new theatre, mostly by its own members, but this is the first history of the, the national new theatre across the different states and across various subjects and topics. I can remember seeing a number of productions of a, of a very energetic musical called Reedy River, which, of course, uh, told the story, always based on Henry Lawson's poem, about the Shearer strike in 1891. It was a, an absolute, uh, well, essential part of the history of the new theatres. 
and and it gets revived even to this day. Um, it opened in um, 1953 in the Melbourne Flinders Street Theatre. was packed to capacity every night for weeks and um, it was so popular. It, it was part of that folk music revival of the 1950s. Uh, in Sydney, the secretary, Miriam Hampson, used to say, when in doubt, when we need some more money, do Reedy River again. <laughs> and it was it was written by a guy called Dick Diamond, as I recall, and uh, and when it opened, it, it ran and ran and ran. Yes, that's right. And over half a million people in Australia have seen Reedy River. And, and it's long been credited with bringing mainstream audience to the new theatres. It, um, it, also, it also did very well for the whole idea of folk music because I can remember the Bush songs were performed by the Bushwhackers. Yes, and um, they kept on going um, to this day with those songs. They've made them very popular indeed. So Reedy River's got a lot to do with the longevity of the new theatre. The performances were never limited to the theatre itself, but rather brought theatre to the people on the streets, in parks and, uh, well, wherever people worked, on the wharves, even mines. Tell us about the performance at the Glen Davis Mine. Ah, well, this is a, a very important part of the theatre's history. In 1952, the Sydney theatre, New Theatre, took a bus um, which had come from the Miners' Federation on loan uh, out to Glen Davis, which is, uh, well, outside Lithgow in Sydney, and they performed a play 1,500 feet underground during a staying strike by Miners' Federation members. Um, they had the five-hour drive up to Glen Davis in the bus to rehearse the um, play, and once they were there, they talked to the miners, they talked about the political issues of the of the uh, strike, and then the miners got them down um, to a makeshift stage at the junction of fine, five mine shafts. Um, it's the only time a play has ever been performed um, that far underground. It was an and, American uh, it was play. Popular. It was an American play called The Candy Store, and for, well, almost all the miners, it was the first time they'd ever seen a play. That's right, and they were very amazed by it and the um, theatre people also did a performance of the play the next day to the miners' wives and children up in the town um, and people remember it even to this day with um, very fond memories of uh, going out to Glen Davis. What happened to the mine, Lisa? Um, the mine closed down. Um, sadly, it didn't. It didn't last. The changes in um, national mine ownership that the government of the time wanted to put in, and it's it's really a ghost town these days. As I said at the start, the only new theatre still operating is the new theatre in Sydney. The secret of its success. How has it lingered on? Um, one of, one of the things I think that has guaranteed its success is being able to buy its own building, its own venue. Um, all of the new theatre branches had always had problems renting venues, finding venues to be loaned to them for the performances. And Sydney indeed moved around. It started off in Pitt Street, then went to Castlereagh Street, then to the King's Cross. But in 1972, a very good time to be... Um, 
ambitious in Australia. The Sydney New Theatre set up a premises fund. It got money from trade unions, other theatres, other left-wing political parties, but also, and importantly, a federal grant. And in 1973, the Minister for Media, Doug McClellan, opened their venue. And they're still there down in King Street, the St Peter's end of King Street. Um, and I think that's one of the secrets to their longevity is having a home. Lisa, what's on at the moment? Ah, well, we've got a very interesting story by a great playwright called Andrew Bavell. It's called Things I Know to Be True. And it's about um, families and and how parents and families fight over what happens in a working-class family. So it's it's got some interesting connections. As you and I talk, memories keep flooding back. I suddenly remember in 1956, Barry Humphreys, a very conservative fellow politically, and Peter O'Shaughnessy put on the Rock and Reel Review at Melbourne's new theatre to celebrate the, uh, well the Melbourne Olympics. Lisa, thanks for coming on. Lisa Milner, historian, activist and editor of the new theatre, The People, Plays and Politics, behind Australia's Radical Theatre, published by Interventions. Thanks, Lisa. Thank you. Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.